My name is Randall. I am one of the leaders here at Hub City Church. Listen, I, so I was saving this announcement until it like finally happened, but I'm so close. Like I'm on the precipice of it happening and I'm pretty excited about it. So um, some of you already know it. You see it. You've kind of seen the aftermath of it, but um, I am so officially close to being off of Facebook, like so close. Um, first of all, like, like I, wanted to, I wanted to be like, oh, like I'm off and then just be able to celebrate that there. But the only reason I'm still on Facebook is I have to kind of manage the Hub City page and you can't, you know, the, all the inner workings of that. Um, I recognize this. I forgot to do that. Like I was supposed to do something like, I just need a break for my mental health. I'm stepping away from all of this. I forgot to do that for all of you. And I just dumped all of you as friends. And so I don't want to apologize for that either. Because here's the deal. What I promise you is I will still be friends with you in real life. Is that cool? Can we do that? All right, great. So um, also, I want to just give an invitation. Come with me over to this side of it. It is so freeing. It is so unbelievably awesome to not have that albatross hanging over your head. It is life happens actually in real space and time. And here's the reason I did it, okay, which is really more of the point. I found myself this, like, into this summer and into the fall, right, just obsessively, like every morning I'm pulling up on my phone Facebook, listen, I'm confessing it. I'm standing before you guys confessing of it. How many of you would, like, admit that you do the same thing? Like the first thing that you pull up and you're scrolling through Facebook and you're like, I kind of came here just to see whose birthday it is, right? And then you're like, but now I'm stuck in the vitriol and the horribleness of this thing that's not even saying true things, right? So, um, and, and then on top of just what it is, right, I recognized, like, there are so many other good things given to me. I could wake up and just gaze upon the beauty of my wife or go have a conversation with my kids in real time or enjoy a cup of coffee. And I found this like habitual addictive pattern. And so I dumped it off of every single like uh, mobile platform this fall, right? And still was friends with a lot of you. And then most recently I was like, it didn't work because I still find myself going to it like on my computer and like scrolling endlessly and all the anxiousness and anxiety over it. And I was just like, I'm done. And so like almost like one fell swoop, um, which I do know what the term one fell swoop means. Um, I just dumped all of you as friends, right? And it's worked because I have nothing to look at anymore and it's fantastic. So, um, but it really stuck with me that like I was, I was doing this thing, this habitual thing, and I, and I really started to evaluate it, and I was like, there's almost a lie embedded in it. There is a lie embedded in it purposely. Um, but just to say, like, I, I'm missing out on the good things that, I want to recognize I'm missing out on the good things that God has actually given me to enjoy, which is my family, which is my wife, which is time with him. Like, there's a Bible sitting next to my bed that uh, I'm scrolling through looking to see, I don't know, you know, and I, I found myself getting just that, the pull, like I dumped it off mobile platforms, and I had a little space where I was like, I'm not doing it, and then it just pulled me right back in with kind of that deception, and that lie, and a habit formed, and I just was like, I'm, I'm just, 
I'm done, right? So that was the decision. I apologize once again. I don't, but for, I guess, dumping you all off of that as platform as friends. My long-term goal, and then we're really going to celebrate, is when I'm off of it and y'all are off of it, and then we could just kill the, the Hub City Facebook page and we can, like, make Mark Zuckerberg poor. That's the goal, okay? So come, come with me. It's awesome over here. Here's the deal. All this is just to explain this all-too-natural rhythm that we, that we really all fall into as humans. We get stuck in it, um, and it's devastating because we get stuck in the rut of habitual sin, right? And there's, there's really nothing unique to how it hits any of us. Like, we don't get to claim that we're, we're doing something that no one else has ever done. Like, we're like, we're not sin hipsters, right? Like, everybody, it hits this human heart the same because, like, you get it, like, page one of the Bible. And then all the way to the end, we see humans falling into this same old rhythm and pattern of sin. We hear a deception, we hear a lie, right? And, and then we so easily move into believing that lie, like my time is better spent doing this, or this is going to promise something that, that God can't. And the ultimate result is we begin to live into that lie. It becomes what's true about us. And eventually what happens is we, we get called out. We get caught in that thing. And then what do we do? We instantly, you just see this story unfold from like page one in the Bible. We instantly start blame shifting, Right. We, we start calling out other people. We, we find the nearest and most convenient target to put the culpability of our sin onto, right? It's what Adam did. It's what Eve did. And inevitably, the consequence for our sin, it catches up with us. They ultimately end up placing the blame on who in that story? They're like, actually, God, it's your fault, right? It's your fault that we chose sin. And so this morning, in our time together, we get to deal with sin, because that's what we're going to see in this passage. So listen, it's not easy. It's always difficult and challenging when we have that come against our own human hearts that all too often desire that. We're going to see how the Israelites fall into this same pattern. So if you, if you want to, again, snag a Bible. Did, did Matt just promise you that you could have seven? Which that's totally cool. Take them. So um, Exodus chapter 32, turn your Bibles on or grab a Bible. You're going to need it. Let me just pray one more time and we're going to jump into these verses. God, we thank you so much that we can come before you humbly as a God who also humbled himself before us as you became one of us, as your living word Jesus incarnated and revealed to us the truth about our human hearts, the truth about how we were meant to live when you created us and how far we stray from that all too often. And Jesus calls us and invites us back in and then provides the way for us to be restored and reconciled to you. So we want to come into submission under our Lord and our King and our Savior, Jesus, the living word, and obey what he calls us to do and be as a people. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're just going to walk through the story here. Um, man, we, we missed a lot, by the way. Like, we kind of wrapped up, ver like, chapter 19 and 20, and we saw the Ten Commandments, right? But then we just kind of skipped a lot, like 11 chapters, I think. And listen, it is 
in unbelievably imperative to understand what happens in those verses, right? What happens in those chapters. It's, it's, it's compelling stuff. It's, it's some of the most compelling stuff in the Bible that is the least compelling to read, right? Because I get it. I know that you are like, why did you skip that? Because I've been trying to figure out what to do with my ox, this whole time. Like the reason I came to Hub City is I just needed to know how to treat my ox or how to make royal priestly garments. It is important to Israel. It is important to us, but we wanted to highlight kind of these big narrative pieces. And so we, we kind of skipped ahead a little bit in the story to get to this story because we believe it's important for us today. Um, I was telling somebody the other day that God continues to do this here at Hub City. He's kind of always historically done this. We tend to end up in books of the Bible that we preach through, which is what we do. We're not going to hear any like kind of topical sermons here. We just pick a book and for better or for worse, go through it. Um, God's always selected the right book for the right time. And I can't imagine how Exodus could not be any more perfect for, for everything that's, that's happening now to us and, and through us and for us. So it becomes incredibly important. So we're just going to dive back into the story here. And it's simply this. It says, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. So again, Moses had gone up. We'll talk about that here in a second. The people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this, Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And that should, all of this should start like cueing us, right? Like, like, we, like we know like graven images are not something we're supposed to do. We know that Israel already has a feast. Why do you need another feast? And now they're declaring and making a feast for themselves in this moment. And they rose up early the next day. So like, notice this, like they are now setting conditions, okay? That's, that becomes important. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So if you're anything like me, you're thinking, right, if you, especially if you go like, yeah, we, we, we kind of gutted out a bunch, like chapter 21 to, to chapter 31, we gutted, but you get that we just read through the Ten Commandments, which is God saying, here's the conditions of this covenant, right? You are to live and be this type of people that would worship me, that would have nothing that would come between you and me. Nothing gets to take cuts in front of you and me. Like you're just there and you're worshiping me and look at what they did. And I just go, man, this thing escalated real quickly from like, yeah, we're all in. We're going to worship God. We're going to be the people of God. We're going to live out the mission of God that he's given us. We want to live into this covenant and the covenant blessing that you have for us that we can then extend to be a blessing to other people. But now we're just worshiping another God right? It takes such a hard turn here. It's like a middle school kid coming back from camp, summer camp, after they made this like big declaration. They rededicated their lives. They come back Monday, and they're just like right back in it, right? That's how we should think of Israel, right? So, so let me just do a quick catch up on the story in case you missed it, and you kind of see this and how it fits into the context. Last week, we saw God, again, in chapter 19 and, and 20, forming a new people, like, like realistically, Israel was not a nation 
of people before this. And, and because, because here, in a way, they kind of get their constitution, right? They get their identity statement. So God has really formed them at Sinai now to be a people, right? He's, and, and, it, and it is the people that he promised he would give to Abraham. And so he forms a new people. They're his people. And he did this by establishing this new covenant with them. And then he sets the condition, which is listen to me, Listen to what I said, look at these laws that I've given you, and obey me and flourish through me. Now, God knew ultimately, right, because at the end of the day, there's going to be like 600-some laws that they are to obey, right? Most of us can't obey one thing well, right, in the law, and so certainly they were not going to obey all 600. There's a purpose for that, but the purpose was like, live into this, listen to me, obey me, and then flourish through what I've given you. And so Moses goes up the mountain on behalf of the people, and then God gives him these 10 statements. The people are freaking out. They don't, they're like, they have had some interchanges with God now at, at Sinai, and they're like, hey, it's a little weird when God talks to us. So Moses, would you go up, right, and intercede for us? And so Moses becomes, in effect, some, some kind of priestly duties here. So he goes back up. He gets these 10 statements, statements that they're really about, really more than they are about us. They're about the heart and the character and the nature of God and what he desires for his image bearers that he loves. And so then after that happens, the people hear all of this, and they're like, man, that sounds so good. We're in. We're all in, right? Sign us up with this God. This God seems to be the God that we want to follow. We want to be faithful to this God. We want to be obedient to this God. So there's this beautiful and, and like culturally like maybe strange ceremony that happens back in chapter 21 where the people are consecrated to God, and through the sacrifice of these bulls, right? They're actually spattered with the blood of the bowl, um, which represents that they are now a people who have been cleansed before God, right? He's like, in some ways, he's like resetting their identity and who they are and forming them and establishing them as his covenant people. So, so they're, they're now, again, God's newly formed people. They're signed and sealed with this newly established covenant, and they claim they will always live into the condition that God gave them, which is to listen and to obey, to be faithful, and then to be a people that would be flourishing and fruitful for the mission that he's given them. So Moses goes back up the mountain then to receive the tablets, right, with these laws inscribed on them, and he's gone for like a minute, right, like 40 days he's gone, but the shift from, yeah, we're all in, right, we're all in with God, to now we're like snatching everyone's gold earrings and making a cow statue for them to worship, that happens so quickly, right? What happens is simply this, right? They hear a lie. They hear a lie. They hear a deception, and then they start believing it. And then you see them fabricating this idol, this thing that, that, they're, that they want to now worship, right? We, we have to see that as sin, that is, that is not obeying the condition that God established with them in this covenant. Why? Be, because ultimately what we see in that is, is that they've moved from a place of trusting God and his faithfulness to a place of unbelief, a place of disbelief, just like God's very first image bearers did in the garden, right? Did God really mean what he said? Is he really as good and as generous as he says he is? Did he really say that you could not eat from any of these trees? God's promised the people in the wilderness that he will be with them and he will provide from them. He'll, he'll, he'll give them 
his, his presence and he will provide everything that they need. And now they're like a little freaked out and they're like, no, maybe that was a lie. Maybe God's once again lying to us, right? It's the same deception and lie that our first mom and dad fell for. It's exactly what the people in this story fall for. Doubt creeps in and you begin to question God's goodness. And what's so, so clear in this story is that when doubt creeps in, when we let doubt in, we will, we, and when doubt creeps in, when it goes unchecked in our hearts, we will turn something into a functional God of our own design and desires. A God that's tangible, one that you can see, one that you can hold, one that you can contain in your own hands, a God that you're not afraid of. Instead of being in awe of the mystery of God, which leads to worship, they act out of fear and create an idol, which is sin. And we can see the pattern unfolding right before our eyes in this, right? Look again at verse one. Make us gods who step out and go before us. They're saying that. They're like, we don't even know who this Moses guy is anymore. We don't know what's happened to him. They do, they know. But they know exactly what's happened to Moses. They know that he's up on the mountain and they're at the bottom of the mountain because they were too afraid to climb it with him. And then the glory of God has descended upon the mountain like a cloud. They can see it with their own eyes. The Shekinah glory of God is right before them. And yet despite that, they start believing this lie. Like doubt is one thing, but if it goes unchecked, it leads always to unbelief because they actually start believing that lie. Like once the calf is made, Aaron and the rest of the people, just like, like the fruit in the garden, they see it's appealing. They see it and they say, what do they say? They say, this is good. Like what we made is good. What we're doing is good. What did God say about what he made? What did God say about what he did? He said, no, look, I determine what's good right? And now they're saying like, no, what we made is good. Aaron builds then this altar before this golden calf, and he institutes his own festival, his own celebration that culminates in this feast, a feast that would now revise their history. What are they supposed to recognize and remember every time they celebrate Passover? They're supposed to recognize and remember God's provision, God's protection for them. Every time that they celebrate annually the Feast of Passover, they are to declare once again God's good grace to them by bringing their salvation and redemption and freeing them from bondage. And now they're revising their history. They're saying this idol, this golden calf, this thing that we made, that is the thing that rescued and redeemed us from Egypt. Even though the people had gotten out of Egypt. Pay attention to this. Even though the people had gotten out of Egypt, Egypt still remained deeply in them. And, and while some of this gets lost in translation, I didn't. I was like, man, um, there's there's going to be kids in here. And and at first thought I was like, I wonder if I could like do charades. But you'll see why charades wouldn't have worked for this. Because in the original text, there's this very depraved undertone to this festival that happens. More than likely, the at least hopefully just the adults are engaging in, well, it's just like things that would maybe even make like a certain Grammy performance look like an episode of Sesame Street, right? Like you get it. It's deplorable. 
behavior. It's like all the adults are interchanging, and you, you get it, right? You get what's happening. Good, I don't have to say it. I don't have to say it rhymes with. So it's deplorable behavior for God's covenant people, right? It, it, and it's not, I mean, it goes all the way back to the story that God said, I've, I've given you to each other to become one flesh with each other. And, and they're just not even living into that, right? And, and so this, this sin that's happening through this altar making and through this idol making and through this festival, it's a sin before the very God who freed them and wrote a better story for them and gave them the law that condemns all the things that they're doing. They made another God. They're, 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 covet, they're coveting after other people. And, and, and guess what? And here's where it gets real hard because we as humans constantly do the same thing. We as God's people still haven't figured this out. We constantly exchange the truth of God for a lie, and we, we just make idols. John Calvin famously said the human, hearts, the human heart is idol factories. Like, we just churn out idols. Like, just think about, just like, go back to this last year and think about everything about your life and just recognize, like, did you stand before the mountain where God's Shekinah glory is, is filled with, and did you come to it with worship, or did you just churn out a bunch of idols? to help you get through this time? Did you just churn out a bunch of things that you said, like, this feels safer. This feels like that it will provide more for me. Like, did this past year lead you to worship King Jesus more, or did it cause you to create more idols? My guess is a combination of, of both to one degree or another. Like, did you give in to the lie? Did you cave into the temptation that God is somehow not good? That somehow God would not see you through this? That God would not provide exactly what you need? If that's manna, great. Like, whatever it is. So they give in to the lie. They cave into the temptation. And then they commemorate all of that sin and celebrate it with this festival. And, and guess what? Again, we as humans, we, we do this all the time. Like we roll out and we start snatching golden earrings and prized possessions and we put them into our heart in a place that they were never intended to occupy and then we just churn out these little idols. It's a universal problem for humans. In, in this book, uh, No God But God, O.S. Guinness, he says, he says this, he says, idolatry is the most discussed problem in the Bible. Like Jesus talks about, a lot about money, he talks a lot about money more than he talks about anything, but what do you think he's actually doing? He's saying, like, watch out, because this thing could, in fact, become something that you worship, that you give your attention to. It could be a, an, an idol for you. So idolatry is the most discussed problem in the Bible. There can be no believing communities without an unswerving eye to the detection and destruction of idols. And so where it exists in your heart and where it exists in our community like, we have to seek it out, we have to call it out, and we have to, to get rid of it. What is idolatry? Idolatry is simply putting something or someone else in the place of God. Idols are counterfeit gods. Anything you seek to give, what only Christ can give you, joy, security, peace, meaning, significance, identity, salvation, that becomes an idol, and we need to be vigilant in our own hearts, and in the heart of our community. Listen, I get it. i got to stop, and, and I'll just like walk you through like how this played out for me. 
And I know I'm a two-trick pony, right? All of my examples are either going to be like pop culture media or biking, right? I wish I could do better for you guys. I wish, uh, like, I, if I was to go, like, here's the two big Venn diagrams of references that I should probably be making, it would be sports or maybe, like, literature, but it just doesn't live in me, right? Like, I could stand up and go, like, well, this one time Richard Sherman, Sherman but I don't, I can't even say his name right. I don't even actually know who that is, right? I'm just sorry that my brain works this way. But it is, and I don't even make any effort. I don't make any effort to go like, this is just what it is. But here's the deal. When I first became a follower of Jesus, I was like 23 years old. Within like three months of that, and I was already like a, a mountain biker. I was already a cyclist, right? It's just, it has been something that has been, I've loved my whole entire life. Shocking. You would think this wouldn't be what, <laughs> you, you like a lot different since I'm such a cyclist, but man, burritos are good, right? So, um, yeah, I just like, I started kind of working in ministry a little bit, like kind of getting called into that and sensing like, hey, this is, so not only was my heart turned over when it came to like, I'm, I'm now like declaring something else as greater than anything else in my life, which was Jesus, but then also like it confronted me like with my time, right? I started helping out in the youth group and I was like, but that's just like, it took up, it didn't take up just one space, it actually took up a couple spaces in my life. I'm like, that's just like less time that I get to do this thing that I love and this thing that brings me so much joy, this thing that gives me such a piece of significance in my life, this thing that gives me so much identity and so much peace and security and meaning. And I was like, oh shoot, that's an idol. That's what that thing is, right? And I realized it pretty early on and I had to like undo, I still have to undo it all the time. I still have to undo it, right? I have to undo it from my heart and detach it and go like, that's not the place it deserves. It deserves a place in my life, absolutely. It's not a bad thing, but it doesn't deserve a place that comes before Jesus in my life. Now I just get to go out in the woods and I get to stop and it's the thing that actually drives me to worship Jesus. I get to thank him for like the ability to do this. I get to thank him for like everything that I get to experience and see like friends and like just outdoors and animals and mountains. I go like, man, that, that actually is something that I can use to worship Jesus, and I had to drive it out to say, but I don't worship it in place of Jesus. Does that make sense? And so we just have to be vigilant about that in our hearts and in our communities, because, because listen, we show up here on Sundays, and we carve out a little bit of time for worship and hearing the gospel and receiving communion, but unfortunately, all too often previous to this, previous to showing up here, on all too often, immediately after we leave, we spend the rest of our day whittling images and idols right? And that's what we really worship. We carve out some time, but we spend the rest of our week whittling out idols and images that we truly worship, and God's going to confront that. He's going to bring it to bear in our hearts. He's going to let the gospel work if we allow it, right? It's going to convict us and confront those things in our heart, but you got to do the work. You always got to ask, like, is this thing coming between me and worship of King Jesus? Because all too often we attempt to make God manageable, just like the Israel, like we try to tame the untamable God and we fall into these old patterns and rhythms of this broken world. We all too often look back to Egypt, don't we? We look back to this former thing that is passing away and we say like, maybe this will give me what I need. And Jesus is standing before us saying like, I'm here and I will give you all the things of hope and peace and meaning and significance and I've saved you. And so, so, so part of this is, is Jesus is always constantly trying to rip Egypt out of our heart, right? Don't worship these false gods. Worship me. Worship Yahweh. Get rid of these old patterns and rhythms of this world. So they look back to Egypt and, and they worship how they worshiped there, right? 
what does Egypt do? How do they worship? They have idols. They have these golden idols that they make. <clears throat> Excuse me. So that's how we'll do it. Egypt had all these like crazy festivals and like perverse things that they did in those festivals. <clears throat> and now they're just trying to like pull those back into how they worship God. Like let, let's, let's set the terms ourselves. Like everything that we knew from the former way, let's just emulate that and how we worship God. But that's not how God has just commanded them to experience them. He already set the conditions. And number one is you should have nothing before me, right? Nothing should come between us. And our tendency is always to attempt to kind of reduce the divine down to something that's physical, something that we can create, something that we can place in our hands and we can see it and we can touch it. We shape and form it, right? And, it, and the hard thing with that is that whatever we shape and form, it's always changing. It's always changing to like what our ever-changing passions are. <clears throat> it's always changing like with how ch culture changes. Like God set up his people and covenanted with them to give them something that would be steady and always true. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so much of our idol making is just always changing based on our passions and our culture and what and God's saying, like, no, I'm here, and I'm solid, and I'm never changing. And why all of that is so convenient is this. When we churn out idols, why it's so convenient is because when we blow it, right, we can change the terms and the conditions by which that relationship was established. Like, God doesn't change them, ever. But when we have an idol that we're worshiping, we can constantly change the conditions and what that looks like. And probably one of the biggest conditions we always tweak is we want a God that we can approach and not be freaked out by. Like we want a God that's just simply not too invasive into our lives, right? right? We set that condition, we'll approach you here, but don't freak us out and don't get too involved in what we have going on, right? We always want to make a God in our image, right? Everybody says that. Instead of realizing that we're made in his and he's formed us to be a people that would worship him in a way that he sets so look at what happens next. God tells Moses what was going on at the foot of the mountain. Moses, Moses doesn't know, right? Um, he's not seeing it, but God sees it. God can see it. God can actually like have the bandwidth to go like, I'm here with Moses, but I can see what the people are doing, right? God sees it, and he actually experiences the pain of it. Like, think about that. Like, we just read this crazy thing that's happening God's pained by it. He's grieved by what is happening with his people. And, and, and this is God telling Moses what he actually proposes to do about the problem. Look at verses 7 and 10. <clears throat> and the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them, like real quickly. And they have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them. Like, think about all the love poured out from God, all the grace poured out from God in the story so far, how he's perfectly provided, perfectly delivered them. And now he's saying, let my wrath burn hot against them that I may consume them in order that I make a great nation of you. So God's kind of saying, hey, Moses, 
like you're the new you're the new Noah, right? I'm gonna I'm gonna reset this thing. I'm gonna get rid of these stiff-necked people who instantly turned and started worshiping something besides me. I'm gonna get rid of these stubborn people and start all over with you, just like I did with Noah. But before you get all judgy towards God, realize this: His pain, His grief, His heart for His people is on full display here, right? It's it's for everyone to see. God is grieved both by our personal and our corporate sin as a people. He's grieved by it. When we worship in our own hearts something other than Him, or when we project or put something else in the heart of the church where He is alone to be worshipped, that pains Him and grieves His heart. So He lets Moses in on this like very intimate moment that He's saying, like, look at my heart for my people. Like, it, it, and it's going to turn, and I'm going to burn with wrath towards them now. Look at how Moses reacts. But Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? There's a weird thing happening there, like people that are not in covenant relationship with God like setting terms and conditions. They don't understand what's happening in God's covenant community, so they're going to blame it on God, right? So turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give you to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. So key, what did, what did Moses just do there? right? Moses groaned. Remember that from a couple weeks ago? This is Moses groaning to God, saying, God, would you remember how good you are? God, would you remember how faithful you are? God, would you remember how true to your promises you are? Would you do what you said you were going to do? Listen, our prayers are always going to be aligned with God's heart when we're just asking him to do what he already said he was going to do. Right? And that's what Moses is doing. Like, remember the covenant you made with your people here. It's also a little weird because you're like, hold up. Like, did, did, you, like uh, did you guys catch it? Like, did, did God just change his mind? Did Moses just change God's mind here? Let me just dispel that for us here this morning. That language that is used here is, is it's not used really in any other place in the Bible. But, but we need to understand that like, God did not change his mind here. God does not relent from his wrath even after he said he would bring it to bear, God doesn't change his mind, but he does relent from the wrath that he was going to bring, right? And it's based on his character, not, not ultimately, yes, Moses' prayer and his groaning, it didn't, it didn't cause God to go, oh, that's right, I totally spaced that covenant thing that I, it's just him saying like, no, I will be true to who I am. So God doesn't change his mind, he just relents from his wrath, which is called What? What does he show the people? It's called grace, right? So Moses appeals to what is consistent and true to God's character. And when he pleads with God to remain faithful and true to his covenant, and God relents. So here's where we get it twisted, is that we can't fathom a God who is so just and so righteous, and at the same time, so gracious and so merciful. But here's the deal. It's undeniably clear that God must bear out the weight of the consequence for sin like if he didn't if he didn't take sin seriously he would cease to be who he is he would no longer be god 
But out of his same character, he's also merciful and he's slow to anger and he's abounding in love and he's grace-filled to a fault. So God is not changing his mind here. He's only being consistent to his character. So God takes sin seriously, so should we. I came across this uh, quote uh, that, I, that I found. It's this guy, Thomas Brooke. Um, you all know Thomas Brooke, the famous, famous English nonconformist Puritan preacher and author, right? You're very familiar with his work. Well, he said this. First of all, like, that's a picture from a book that um, he wrote. So I just, I wanted to, like, can we look at the other picture too? Somehow the publisher went with that first one. They were like, let's not put up the one that actually is like a little more photorealistic. Go back to the other one. They're like, let's put that one on, like the derpy one on his, yeah, anyways, he said this. He said, there is no little sin because there's no little God to sin against. Like God, because of his character, because of who he is, he takes sin seriously because of who he is. But just after God relents from this looming disaster for the people, right, Moses makes the trip down the mountain to return to his people. And as he's making his way down the mountain, you kind of get this picture, right? His ears perk up. He hears the sound of something droning in the background. His number two, Joshua, says to him, do I hear the sound of war? What's that sound? But Moses knows what's up. And he knows it's not good. He can hear the faint sound of the music. He can hear the rhythmic pounding of dancing in the distance. And he can smell the lingering residue of the food that was sacrificed to this new God, this new altar. And he's so disturbed by what he witnesses that he takes the two tablets, right? And he throws them down on the ground and he breaks them. He's heartbroken along with God over the grievous sins being committed by his people before God. They righteously deserve whatever judgment is coming their way. So what does he do, right? He takes the golden calf, he tosses it into the fire, and then he grounds it up into this fine powder, and then he puts it in the water, and he makes the people drink it, right? It's like he's making an, a, a chameleonaire video, right? So everybody's drinking like bubbly, sparkly, gold-filled wine. And so he, he, he takes the very thing that they were worshiping and makes them consume it. That's crazy, right? And Aaron, the leader of the people, while Moses was away, he, he's held accountable for this. Let's pick it back up into verse 21. And Moses said to Aaron, what did his people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of the Lord burn hot. You know the people they, that they are set on evil. So what does Aaron do? He gets caught what does he do? He shifts the blame, right? Oh, it's them. It's their fault. For they said to me, make us a God who shall go before us. As for this, Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let anyone who would take or has gold, take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it in the fire. Like, I, like you just get the, there's, this is comedic and filled with like kind of some, some, some comedy here, right? Aaron's just like, I don't know what happened. Like the people are evil. I just took all of their gold. I threw it in a fire. And then somehow this golden calf just popped out, right? Like, how did that happen? Right? And what's so clearly revealing to us is, is we're, we're just like Aaron. Like the minute we get called out on our BS, we shift the blame. Like it's their fault. Like they did this, Right? But, but listen, it's just simply not true that everything wrong in your life is someone else's fault. It's just simply not true. And the minute we get called out on it, 
and we, 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 try, and we, like, we try to justify it. We make excuses for our sin, and then we justify our sin, and then we magnify somebody else's role in it. How, how many of you would say that that just sounds true for you? Y'all admitted that you do the same thing on Facebook. You can confess this too along with me, right? You, you blame somebody else. You put it in a place it shouldn't be. The problem is this. No matter how much we try to deny it, right, there are real-world consequences for sin because sin always results in death, death of relationships, death of trust, death to families, death to community, and if unchecked, it can tear down churches. All this leads us to this last piece in this cycle. There are consequences for their actions, and the consequence for them is death. You see that at this point that Moses, he calls, right, to, to the faithful to himself. He stands up and he says in verse 26, right, he stands before the entrance of the camp and he says, who is on the Lord's side? I'm on God's side. I'm on Yahweh's side. Who's on God's side? Come to me. The Levites stand up to be counted and they join him. And Moses instructs them. This is brutal. It's brutal, right? Moses instructs the Levites to go through the camp and put everyone who participated in this to the sword. Who sinned? They die. If they sinned, they die. And they do. And this is brutal. This is like brothers killing brothers, neighbors turned on neighbors, like 3,000 people are put to the sword. Presumably, this is weeding out those that instigated this horrific act. And the point to, is crystal clear. Allegiance to God requires going to war with your sin. Allegiance to God requires going war to war with your sin. Listen, if you're going to stand on God's side, you're going to have to face that sin and you're going to have to repent of it and turn away from it and return to God. You simply cannot be in allegiance with God and allegiance with your sin. And Moses knows that better than the people. He knows that through their rebellion, the full weight of these consequences is more than they could ever bear or imagine. So this is egregious sin, and it has to be atoned for. So we have to, we have to deal with that word. Atonement is simply this. It's, it's incredibly important word for us to kind of center on as God's people. It's found all throughout the Bible. And it's this process by which we are reconciled to God. It's taking what was wrong and making it right now. It means where a relationship between two people has been severed and detached, atonement is the means by which that relationship is restored and reconciled. And as we apply that to this story and we apply it to our story, we see sinful man wronging a holy God and it happens over and over and over again, making idols, churning up something else to worship other than God. So Moses goes to God and he proposes a solution. Let's read it in verse 30. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned against a great God and now go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold, but now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book, but now go lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. You see, Moses knows that the only way that there can be atonement, 
The only way that this can be set right and reconciled is if sin is dealt, dealt with, dealt with, dealt with and forgiven. Moses, in a way, is identifying himself with these people. Remember earlier, Moses goes to bat for the people. He goes before God as their mediator, as their advocate, and he pleads with God to not destroy his people. But now Moses is standing before God saying, you are absolutely just and right to destroy them. And he says, if that's what you do, then destroy me as well. He's taking some ownership here, right, of how he's led the people. So in a way, Moses is standing before God and he says, I'll take the blame, put the blame on me. Like if you could actually spare them, but put the blame on me. If you're going to punish anyone, punish me and please forgive them. He's interceding on their behalf. He ultimately knows no amount of blood from any bull will truly and permanently satisfy the wrath of God. So Moses has faith in the forgiveness of God. He knows God himself would have to provide the forgiveness for our sin to truly be atoned for. God could and would have been justified to walk away from this covenant relationship with his people. They broke it. He didn't. He didn't break the covenant. The people did. Instead, we're going to see God satisfying the terms by which wrath and justice should be brought, but he satisfies it ultimately within himself. God shows his deep commitment to covenant relationship with his creation because God is absolutely committed to saving and rescuing his people. And all of this is God's plan, building to the right moment in history when God would come to his people again and he would make atonement for all sin once and for all. Because one day there would be a mediator that would appear at the right time as a man and he would offer his very self as the perfect atoning sacrifice for all time. Jesus, the God-man, would come to a people and he would put himself on display and people would praise him and follow him. And they said, sign us up for whatever you have going on. We will always follow you. Oh, you're not going to give us bread. We're out, right? And all too suddenly, like even before the great declaration of following this guy, like leaves their lips, they're shouting out, crucify him crucify him. And like Moses, Jesus would plead with God the Father on behalf of his people. He begs his Father to forgive them as he's hanging to his death on a cross that the people demanded he be put on. Jesus would offer himself to the Father to be a propitiation for our sins, to be blotted out for our sake, bearing the sins of the world so that we never would have to. We must remember that our sin has real and present consequences, and the consequence of all sin is death. And we earn, that is what we earn when we sin. We earn death. It shows up on our very first paycheck for sin. It's our wages. It's death. But Jesus flips the script and, and what we get in submitting to the kingship of Jesus is not death, but life. Because Jesus, the righteous one, is our advocate to the Father. He is the propitiation for our sins. He becomes our substitute. He is the Passover lamb, assuming our obligation and covers our guilt. And he justifies us before the Father. 
as he assumes the consequence of our sins, he takes them to the tree for us, and in turn, he gives us freedom and forgiveness and life, freedom from sin. So the pattern of behavior that we were so wrapped up in when we hear those lies, when Egypt comes calling for our hearts, Jesus is ripping the Egypt out of our hearts. We hear those lies. We've now been given the Spirit to refute those lies. We have His Word to stand on. We come to those lies with a better story and a better truth. We're able to go to war with our sin because Jesus went to war with it first. Because we now stand in allegiance with Yahweh because Jesus stood in our place for our sin. That's the good news of the gospel, and I love that in Exodus chapter 32, like the story's barely started to go for God and his people, and, and he delivers the gospel to his people in Exodus. He's talking about Jesus standing in our place as the true and better Moses. Let's respond to King Jesus now. Let's give him, let's let nothing come between him and our hearts as we worship him. Let's worship him through song. Let's worship him as we communicate and pray. Let's worship him as we give. Let's worship him as we go to the table, the very thing that Jesus offered up, his blood and his body for us to set us right, to atone for our sin. Let's go and celebrate and remember and act in grace that he gives us and remember his good sacrifice for us. Let me pray and let's respond.